So let's turn to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Jesus has gone to Galilee and his disciples meet with him there. And Matthew's entire account of the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven is comprised and contained within these verses. The entire teaching in which we know he taught them things concerning the kingdom of God because Luke says that 40 days of teaching are crystallized or condensed into these words by Matthew. Jesus came up to them and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless your word in our lives. May it guide us. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May my words reflect your words and may they come with power, therefore, with the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. There are two basic failures that I have seen people fall into that are destructive to their spiritual lives. These errors are errors I've seen over years of being a pastor, but this observation is, of course, not unique to me. I think many people have said that the Christian life is the walking of a straight and narrow path. Jesus said that. And there are dangers on either side. And on one side is the danger that we as Protestants have always accused the Roman Catholics of falling into, which is a faithless works. Doing things and thinking that in the doing of the things, we become children of God and earn the favor of God. And those things might range within orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism from auricular confession, as it's called, going to the confessional and confessing your sins and receiving by the priest's power absolution, mass, the attendance at the mass, which is necessary by Roman Catholic theology for the expiation of sin, the baptism, which makes you clinging of original sin. And so I, I, I could list these things, and, and if you've been part of a Protestant church, you probably understand what I'm talking about, this I've done something, I am something, therefore I must be, belong to God. I'm a good person, I, I pay my tithes, and it can be as as easy for Protestants to fall into that side, though the, the theology of Protestantism does not explicitly embrace that view of salvation, right? Whereas Roman Catholicism does. But the, the error is not limited to Roman Catholicism. The theology is more Roman Catholic and Orthodox. 
Of course, there's another side, and that's the side that is, in a sense, the, the corresponding error to the error I just described, and it's very much the Protestant error, which is to say, I have faith, I have belief, and then to lead a life that goes wherever it wants under, under its own authority, living without fruit and without obedience, claiming faith as justification and not seeking in any way to, to have the deeds that are the deeds of faith and belief. And the Christian life must repudiate this side and this side and walk down that straight and narrow path that is both obedience to the commands of Christ and faith in the commands of Christ. And as we go further in this Great Commission, we'll see both sides of that path represented in what Jesus speaks to his disciples about what they're to do in making disciples of all nations. But before we begin, we have to spend, I think, another, another week thinking about the authority of Christ that he claims and introduces the Great Commission when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This precedes and establishes what follows because following this statement of fact comes the, the, the commission, what he wants us to do what he charges his disciples with accomplishing. And as we, as we read these words and we think about these final, these final words recorded in Matthew of Christ, these, this, this, this condensed version of everything he taught in those 40 days, I, I want to talk to you about a little bit about my own life and why... I believe it's so important that we pay close attention to everything Jesus says here, and in particular to his initial claim that establishes what follows, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I, I, I grew up in a home where my father was not a hypocrite. I just flat out tell you, I did never see hypocrisy in my dad. What he said, he did. What he believed, he lived. And I, I really loved my dad, and I've been blessed with a father-in-law who is very much that way as well. And it's a gift from God to have that kind of a father and a mother, and my mother was that way as well. But I, being like many of you young men, didn't really enjoy the things that my father was committed to. I wanted to taste the world a bit more, and uh, I was constrained by the obedience of my parents, by the holiness of them. I felt... I felt guilt about going down the path that I wanted to go. But as I got to be oh, about the age of Ezekiel here, maybe a year younger than you, I, I realized that all the, my friends in the church I had grown up in were paying lip service to God, but not obeying him. I, I could explain how many ways I saw it, but I saw it everywhere in the church that I was a part of. Every kid I knew, every guy I knew, one Maybe exception, I remember, and he's the one who committed suicide in college. And I wonder, I've wondered at times whether his suicide was the product of his seeing the hypocrisy and feeling that he was slipping into it himself. But, uh, and one young woman, I remember, in our youth group of 100-some, that I thought maybe really did know God. 
but otherwise it was hypocrisy. And it was real hypocrisy. I mean, it was claiming I love God, singing hymns, singing, leading the, with the guitar, you know, really forward in their worship, but then also forward in their disobedience, I knew. And so I said, I'm done, and uh, went the way of some of the sons of this congregation have gone, and daughters. And I said, I'm done, and I went full-fledged into sin. I didn't pretend. I didn't pretend. I said, I'm done. But in those years of being done and going into sin, there was not a lot of joy. Initially, of course, the popularity of sin and the, the fun of, of that kind of life was attractive. But as it went on, I became more and more convinced that this was a path that was not a happy one. And perhaps some of you who've spent years in sin realized that, and that's part of how you came back to God or came to know him. And so at some point, I was, I was really sick of my sin, but, and this is four or five years after I was a junior in high school, but I didn't know how to get out of it. I was trapped, and then God gave me the ability to leave, especially certain sins, and in particular one that consumed me those years was, was drinking. And and God delivered me from it, and I, after he delivered me from drinking, I came to know that I was a sinner, and I repented, and I turned to him, and suddenly I wanted to be a pastor. I was in school to be a pastor, but I was an alcoholic, you know, I was a drunkard. And, uh, and so, out of that, I, I had a great desire to be a pastor suddenly. I didn't want to be a hypocrite. And by God's providence, I was led back to the church I grew up in. The first Sunday I was really back, I met my wife in a singles group in that church. But one of the things that, as we were dating, I became aware of that was going on in this 300-member singles group in that church, all people in their early to mid to late 20s. One of the things I realized was that within this group, which I thought I had come back, I was alive as a Christian, I thought was just like me, a lot of people were going out and partying. And I had quit drinking a couple of years before and had really come to know how evil it can be to, to, to party and party and party. And so they gave me an opportunity as a graduate of seminary. A guy had been an intern at a big church for a year the year before. They gave me the opportunity to teach that, that singles group one Thursday night. And I chose to, to speak on the dangers of of alcohol and the partying lifestyle and leading others into sin. Well, I thought I'd have a lot of amens. You know, I had come back to the church. I was the, the rebel come home, sort of speaking about sins, sins that they knew I'd committed. But all I heard were negative comments on that teaching, that I didn't understand grace, that I didn't understand, that I was a legalist, that I was this and that. And... That experience helped shape my approach for the last 35 years as a pastor. The realization that many of us just don't want to obey God. And I know it's true of myself, but as a pastor, I know it's true of you. And I know that you are prone to take this mistake and say, I'm justified, I'm a recipient of grace, it doesn't matter what I do. 
and to make that your flag and the standard over a life of disobedience. I know it. And so as we approach this passage of Scripture, it's important that we understand the significance of Jesus' initial words in this passage. That we understand what he means when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is what begins the commission. Now, the commission that follows is understood. I asked someone, a friend the other day, what the Great Commission basically is, and this friend said to me, it's a command to go. And I think many people think that, and I keep on saying to you, Jesus doesn't command going. The imperative is not used there. In fact, it's an assumption of going. He says, in your going, therefore, do this. We've made the command to go the only command that we listen to and follow out of the Great Commission. So we take missionary trips and we send missionaries out. And I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons why we're, I am very leery of supporting foreign missionaries is I've seen how many go and go and go, but don't do the commission. Do not raise up disciples. Do not teach obedience. The American missionary movement, which began in glory and was powerfully used by God to start churches all over the world has now been the exporting of American sin all around the world. I'm not saying that I have dear friends who are great missionaries and who have given their lives to calling people to Jesus. The American missionary movement has gone from being a sacrificial movement of people committed to following Christ and making disciples to being people who go. And that is not the command. The command is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And that is just not done. And that's why we've been committed as a church more to home missions. People we know, people whose fruit is evident. That's why Recently, we just, as a church, and I'm, I'm letting you know something that, <laughs> that we've done and that you'll probably hear about later, that we've taken on Hunter uh, Turner, who's working with internationals here in the United States and supporting him in that work, because we know the fruit, we see it, we know what's being done, and those are the things that we're committed to. That's why we've done Young Life. We've known Chris Light, and we believe in him, and this is a fundamental criterion that we have for support for things it's not the claim I'm going it's the claim it's the obviousness of I'm bearing fruit and it's not a claim it's just the light shining so there is a, a clear relationship between this claim to authority by Jesus his saying I have received <clears throat> all authority all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and what follows. That authority had been laid down when Jesus was here on earth. He takes it back up now, and he says, look, I have all authority. 
And there is a relationship between that authority and our carrying out his final commands, these words we know as his great commission. What is the relationship, though, between the two, between the authority and the command? Now, we touched on this two weeks ago. I want us to think even more closely about it this morning. What is the relationship between Christ having been given all authority on earth and in heaven and our following the command that he then gives his followers, his disciples, that we, in our going, make disciples <coughs> of all people, all, all in the Greek ethne, the root of our word ethnicity or ethnic, all nations, all peoples. And at this point, what I want to do is offer a couple uh, suggested answers to this question I just posed in order to shoot them down, all right? Now, it may be that you're going to think one of these two, and I want to sort of disabuse you of your thinking in regard to this command of Christ that's based, predicated on his authority. Um, first, I want to talk to you about the idea of some, the, the meaning of this, the meaning of this command or, and its relationship to his authority is that the church of Jesus Christ the gathered people of God are a marching army that is, that is victorious in everything, in every way, all the way. That we as a church have earthly power and that power is only going to increase and it is only going to become more and more obvious and over time we are going to rule the world for Christ. You may not have as bold an idea of it as that, but it's still an appealing idea that Christ has authority, we have authority, we are going to conquer, we are going to win, we are going to do these things. Of course, there's a certain element of truth in this. There are promises about the power of the kingdom of God on earth and how Satan cannot stand against us. There are promises for how we will win people. And there has been a great turning to Jesus from that initial small group to this point today where all across the world Jesus is known and worshipped. So we would be wrong to say that this authority of Christ does not have some universal leavening influence throughout the world, that it doesn't spread and, and lead people to God and cause the world to understand that Jesus is great and to, to submit in a sense to his authority. Certainly the fact that the Vatican, as the sort of centralized locus of at least Roman Catholic power, and often seen by many as a, the center of Christian power, is, is regarded as powerful by the nations of the world and the rulers of those nations. This is, in a sense, a recognition that there is an authority to the kingdom of God on earth. We may not agree with how the Vatican uses its authority, but we recognize that it has authority and that it is viewed as that. But we also need to recognize that in the time of Christ, many, many disciples, Paul has to deal with them in books like Ephesians and Corinthians, many uh, Thessalonians and Corinthians. Many people believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime and that they were going to, that they were going to take over the world. And Paul has to say, no, no, it's not that way in those books. 
Some have the idea that by prefacing this command by a statement of his absolute authority, Jesus is intending and conveying to his disciples a promise of an almost universal power and efficacy as we do his work as his disciples. He has authority, all authority. He has all authority in earth. He has all authority in heaven. Therefore, I am going to conquer the world. I am going to, to conquer. As though the, the authority of Jesus is a guarantee of our success. And that as we make our way into the world and achieve success and renown and influence in worldly ways, this is a sign of the power of Christ. The whole world is going to surrender to Christ. The whole world is going to submit to the gospel message. The whole world is going to repent, and we are going to bring it about. And this has been a, a, a very much a feeling within se segments of the Christian church for, for centuries. Christ's name is going to be praised from east to west because of the work we do as his disciples, accompanied by his authority. It goes under a term right now, Christian nationalism. We are going to, we're going to lead the world by the authority of Christ to worship him. We are going to work for this. And it's appropriately humble at points saying, it may not be me that's going to be the one who does it all, and it may not be in my lifetime, but we're on this track, and we are going to bring this about. Clearly, just looking at the world and the church, it's been 2,000 years, and while the church has advanced, and while many claim the name of Jesus, this kind of an overall triumph has yet to take place, and despite the spread of Christianity, the world of Satan's dominion, the prince of this world, is not, at this point, I think, frightened of the church. Now, he knows that the church will win. But in these innings of the battle, of the game, it certainly doesn't look like the church is overcoming Satan. The church in America is not a church of power. It is not a church that's changing the nature and character of our nation. We are not leading the world to Jesus Christ. Remember a man from Uganda, a man who went on to become a, a bishop in the country, saying to me, in America, there's no cost to being a Christian, he said. There's none at all. And he was from a country where there was. And it was just reflecting on American Christianity. It's broad but not deep. So we're talking about facts, and I don't think they're disputable that the world is not turning to Christ. Our nation is not being led to Christ. We have a need to fulfill this great commission. The tactics that we have followed in this endeavor, in this obedience to Christ, in obeying this commission, that our tactics have been wrong. They have not led us to good things. And they're not producing victory. But rea the reality is, if Christ was saying, all authority is mine and you're going to triumph, why does it take two millennia to get there and we haven't gotten there yet? 
And for instance, why does Jesus say to his disciples, but when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Is that a statement that expresses an absolute conviction by Christ that because of his plenary, complete authority in all areas and over all things, that everyone is going to come to worship him on earth through the agency of the church and its power? Can we really believe it based on the scriptures and their statements about the end times and the many falling away? Jesus saying, will I find faith? The facts on the ground that we look at around us. Are we winning this battle? It's always nice to say, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning. Everyone wants to say, I'm winning, I'm winning. And you can believe you're winning even when you're losing. (laughs) This happens very often. But are we winning this battle? And I think it's clear that Jesus is not telling his disciples on this day that they are going to use his authority to conquer the world, at least in their lifetimes. But he's speaking to them, saying, go and do this. And he knows, and they know, that they're going to die in this thing. And that brings me to my second point, that we've got to knock down. The meaning for the church is the first meaning, for the, the kingdom of God as a group, as a corporate entity. But then for us as individual Christians, I think we have to speak as well to what this can't mean. There's another possible solution that many believe, and that's that Jesus intends by his authority to have his disciples go out and be filled with his plenary power. That it is their joy and privilege to use this power. Christ is always with us. Christ will never forsake us. These are truths. But to go from these truths that Christ has power, Christ is always with us, Christ will never forsake us to a personal idea that I, therefore, am going to ride on the clouds of glory in my lifetime. It's wrong. This is not a promise that your life is going to be easy. You're going to have to carry a cross, right? This is not a a promise that you're going to achieve victory in everything. It's not a promise that the, the powers of the world are going to bow down to you. It's not a promise that you're never going to get disease. It's not a promise that disease and, and ill health and lack of success in your business and are going to stay away from you because you belong to God. So this is not a power that establishes you any more than it's a power that establishes the church, at least in certain ways. And again, not disputing that there, are, there is power in the church and authority and that there is authority in your life and that Jesus is always with you. So what can it mean when Jesus says these things? To properly understand, I think, the significance of Christ's power to our lives as his disciples, we need to... We need to ask what Jesus means when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. If he's not speaking about us corporately, the kingdom of God in its corporate identity as the church, and if he's not speaking about you and me in particular having that kind of success, then what does it mean? 
what I think we need to get clear in our minds and have established really in the forefront of our thoughts is that when Jesus says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, it's not a statement about us. You go, duh. But let me say, no, it's not a statement about you. It's a claim Jesus makes about himself. He's making a claim about himself and his authority. He has all in heaven and on earth. So what is the connection between this claim and the following commands? To go out, make disciples, to baptize, to teach them to obey everything that he commanded? Well, I think it's folly to take Christ's claim to authority and to assume that because Christ has authority, therefore, I have authority. And I will use it this way, and I will do this by it, and I'll have this success because of it. That in fact, that's arrogance, that's pride. Arrogance to hear Christ say, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and immediately say, and not as people listening to him. And therefore, I'm going to go and do this. It's like the disciples who say, Jesus is great, therefore I'm going to reign. Give me the right hand. Let me sit at your right hand. I'm going to want a throne there. You know, Jesus, you have power, you have authority. I want to call down fire on that Gentile and that Samaritan village that wouldn't worship you. But really, they're the ones offended because he's not. Very easy to take the glory and the authority of Christ that belongs to him and say, I'm his follower, I'm a child of God, therefore this is mine. I'm going to use this. this, this belongs to me. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Christ has it. Now there's an obvious meaning to this statement, to this claim. There's an obvious meaning that I think many of you have never considered. And that is that when Jesus says, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth, it's like my saying to my little son years ago, I'm your father, clean the bathroom. Right? Does anyone have any doubt about what my claim to authority, I'm your father means when it's related to clean the bathroom? Is, is that a mystery to you? Does that mean that I'm going to go and clean the bathroom or that I'm going to hold the brush in his hand as his father while he cleans the toilet? If I were president and I were to say to my generals, hey, I'm commander-in-chief of the armed forces. The Constitution says it. The people elected me. Therefore, go and do this. Do there be any question about what that claim to authority means? It means, what does it mean? It means... Listen to me and obey me, right? It says, listen to me and obey me. You may have to die in this. President Truman did this with the most popular general in the American army back in the 19, late 40s, early 50s, I don't know, 49, 50, 51, sometime in there. General MacArthur, the hero of World War II, fighting and leading the troops in the Korean War. And MacArthur wanted to bomb China. Once China came in on the side of the North Koreans, he said, I want to bomb them. I want to bomb them. 
We have the atomic bomb, let's use it. And Truman said no, and MacArthur kept saying, I want this. And he wasn't respecting the authority of the president. And one of the great acts of authority by an American president, President Truman said, you're fired. Kicked him out, the general of the army, kicked him out. All authority belongs to Christ. And he has commanded that you do certain things. Your relationship to authority does not mean that you own that authority. I remember working in the house of some wealthy people. Good wealthy people. Very, very wealthy people. They had lived in, lived in servants back in the, the 1980s. And they had young children. And they had a live-in maid and nanny. They had a gardener. I was one of the gardeners. And I remember one time when one of the kids was kind of presumptuous, kind of impolite towards the maid. Now, the mother in that house might have said exactly what the child said to the maid and expected her to listen. But when her child said that to the maid, what did the mother say? The mother took that child and said, don't you presume. And she didn't say the things, but implicit in her actions were, you may be my child, but don't you think my authority is your authority? I've called you to behave with respect towards our maid, and you'd better do it. This is Jesus. When your mother says, I gave birth to you, now go and do this. You understand that she's saying, listen to me. This is Jesus Christ. They have been with him for years. They know that he has died as the sacrifice for their sins. So the disciples know this. They are struck with wonder at his glory and at his sacrifice. They love him for it. They're with him. They know he's going to return one day, but that he's departing from them. Says to the Mary, don't hang on to me. I have got to go to my father. They know he's going. They love him. They know the way he's paid for their sins. They know all these things about Jesus. And so when he says to them, I have all authority. They love him, and they want to go and do it for him. They're not looking for glory anymore. They were before. Let me sit at your right hand. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's call down fire on, but no more. Now it's simply, okay, we'll go. And if we die, we die. But Jesus is glorious, and he has all authority, and I will obey him. So I want to close with just three brief statements of implication from Jesus saying, I have all authority. Jesus doesn't claim authority to lift you up. Jesus claims authority so that you'll obey him. And he says, you know, 
The servant is just a servant. The slave is a slave. James, the brother of Christ, says, James, a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he describes himself. Happily a slave to Jesus. We don't rise above this. And even when we do his will, we're unworthy servants. He's saved us and given us the opportunity to do his will. That's all the blessing we need. It's all the power we need. Jesus told me, therefore, I will do it. I will obey. Your glory, one, your glory is found in your submission. You want glory, you want victory, you want these things. Then tie your goals to Christ's. Stop having your own goals and thinking that your goals are empowered by his authority and start obeying. Obey him. Second, as we are in submission to Christ, we find our confidence. Our lack of confidence is often an indication that we are not in submission. But to the one who is in submission to Christ, the one who has all authority, nothing can penetrate that protection. Nothing that is not of God and therefore for your good can come and attack you. Nothing. Your confidence and your safety are in submission. Your glory is in submission. Your confidence, your safety is in submission. Third, there's no happiness outside submission. Now, I'm a pastor, and I've spent 20-some years with some of you, 35 with others, preaching and teaching God's Word, working very inadequately, but working to call you to submit to Jesus. And over these years, and I'm allowed to say that on my fourth from last Sunday preaching to you in this position, over these years I've learned, Cheryl and I have learned, that happiness comes from obedience. And we have seen as agents of God's obedience, because we're required to go and teach obedience, right? And that's my job is to teach faith and obedience, we have seen that, that those who listen to this inadequate pastor, this sinful man, but who is seeking to follow God in this way, are blessed. That authority is actually delegated to elders and pastors and that God blesses you as you listen to that authority and that those who will not listen to authority are on a path to destruction no matter how wise they seem in their own eyes. So I call you to recognize that authority is from God. That the authorities in your life are instruments of God for your good. I'm just quoting scripture. And that your obedience 
when authority comes against you, whether it's immediate from the word of God or mediated by men through their words, applying the word of God to your life. Your obedience is your glory, your confidence, and your happiness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the authority of Jesus Christ, and we ask, Father, that as a church and as individuals, we may obey him. We may be confident that we may be happy that we may find glory in our submission to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.